This is Lebanon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you are here um, risking your safety um, and you're giving us your time to talk about the Kafala system today, otherwise known as the Lebanese or let's say the Arab world's modern day slavery. So before we get into the juicy stories, um, I would like to know a little bit about This is Lebanon, how it was created and what your mission is and what you hope to do for the future. Sure. First of all, thank you very much for interviewing oh. me. I feel very privileged. <laughs> thank you so much for giving um, me your time. This is great. <laughs> uh, we really we need to get these stories out. We need people to know. So this this is really important to us. Thank you. So our page was um, founded by Dipendra U Preti, who lives in uh, Canada, and he was a migrant worker himself in Lebanon for about 16 years, and okay. he met his Nepali wife there as well in Lebanon, and they love the country, So, and all, all everyone on our team loves Lebanon and is working actually for a better Lebanon. We think Lebanon can do better and deserves better than this system, yeah. So um, Dependra volunteered for the Nepali consulate when he was in Lebanon, and while he was in that role, he oversaw the repatriation of more than 40 domestic worker corpses back to Nepal. Oh and only one person was ever charged for murder, and that was a Syrian man. So no Lebanese were charged for any of those murders. And Dependra said that if he ever made it to the West, he would do something to help the domestic workers that he had seen suffer there. And he was true to his promise, you know, because many migrant workers, when they make it to the to Canada or other countries, you know, they just become obsessed by getting the biggest house and the big car and, you know, or kind of migrant worker goals, right? Yeah. Dependra was never like that. You know, he's done really well for himself, but he's always been about domestic workers. It's his obsession. He lives really to help these women, even now that he's in um, in Canada. So he, with the help of others, um, birthed This Is Lebanon. It was founded in, in 2017. Okay. And that, it was just a Facebook page, nothing more. And it was launched with the idea of bringing these stories out of the darkness into the light. And no one had any bigger goal than that. It was just like, let's just tell some stories. Because um, he figured that if more people knew, then it must bring change. But there was no no more goal than just telling stories. But what we found is that almost immediately, it became the hotline for domestic workers. So we were getting um, almost from day one, actually, inundated by people asking for help. So we never planned it, but we did um, become the hotline for, for domestic workers. And to date, I just checked now to see what our latest number message, incoming messages, and it's um, one thousand, uh, four, sorry, 14,700 um, cases or unique individuals that have contacted us. So, of course, they're not all domestic workers. Like, you contacted us. Yeah, so one of those was you. But, um, you know, aside from a few journalists, we've been contacted by 14,700 people. Wow. So it's a lot, yeah. So how, like, how rampant it is in Lebanon. This is an insane number, I'm shocked. 
Yeah, I mean, we're basically just a small group of activists sitting on our couches doing the entire job of the Ministry of Labour. Like, imagine if we have been able, you know, we've been able to achieve such incredible results. Imagine if the Ministry of Labour in Lebanon actually did its job. What kind of change could they bring in? It's insane how we rely on so many NGOs, NGOs to do the government's work. But it's just like it's never enough because at the end of the day, these NGOs are run by, you know, exactly what you said, volunteers and people sitting on their couches in like their two hour break or their two hour free time to do this. Yeah, this is, um, this is amazing. Really kudos. Yeah. To we've had some real uh, I mean, like maybe we can cover it later, but just mm. to say now we've had some really incredible successes like the. The biggest payout was for a Filipino woman who had been enslaved for 21 years. And her employers, we heard, were connected to Nebehbiri. So they um, only spent, he, the, the employer only spent three days in prison before he was released. And there was some um, secret deal done for a, a major payout. We know how much it was, but we won't um, say how much on air. But um, yeah, 21 years no contact with her family and no salary. 21 years. It's just, you know, the, these crimes are heinous, actually. I'm, I'm currently personally handing three cases of women who haven't been paid for more than a decade. Oh so we're, we're not talking about, we're talking about major crimes here. We're talking about slavery. This is, you know, it's, it's funny because we never, like me right now as I live in the West, we never think about these things. We never think about, oh, do we still have this type of enslavement going on somewhere in the world? We, it's not even a passing thought, but to think that this is the reality that is rampant in the Arab world is, is beyond me. And it's just to show like how corrupted the government also is, um, that they're willing to cover up, you know, basically human slavery and murder <laughs> i mean yeah no, the government part of the problem this is this is state-sponsored slavery let's be really clear about that if they had any will to fix this problem they could fix it they could just put one of these um slaveholders in prison and it would send us a, a clear signal to the general population that this is not accepted but it, they don't, and they have they have impunity, and they use it. They know it, and they use it. This is uh, this is such a shame, honestly. And uh, I, I we will get to these stories in a little bit. Um, but I know that this is Lebanon is also involved. You know, as you mentioned in the hot, has you became the like the hotline for migrant workers in in the region and in the country specifically. But you're also involved in the daily issues that they struggle with. Um, in Lebanon, and I want us to talk about this a little bit more. Can you give us a little bit of um, like a brief overview on what the kafala system and how the kafala system limits the freedoms of migrant workers? I, I think most of your listeners probably have jobs, right? They're, they're young people and they're working. And they would probably agree it is a basic human right that if they're not happy in their job, if the boss is abusive, if they're not getting paid, for example, they can choose to leave. Bye bye. See you never. Right? It's it's just a you don't think that you. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you're a domestic worker, you can't just leave. You know because of the um, substantial fees paid to the agent, 
most employers feel that they have bought the worker. In fact, if when they're not consciously filtering their language, that is the exact word they use when they're talking to our negotiators and their, their language is not guarded. They say, I bought her. So, yeah, there is a three-month trial period. And during that um, period, the employer and the worker can decide not to proceed with the contract. So both can work away, walk away. And in practice, it's much harder for the uh, the worker to to leave. But there is that, uh, in theory, that opportunity. But uh, workers often report to us that the employers change towards them once that trial period is over. They know it's a trial period, and that once the the contract is signed, she has she's got no way to leave. And you know, about ninety five percent, and this is documented. Uh, of employers confiscate the passport, which is a, it's an international crime that goes unchallenged in Lebanon. But there, you know, there are very limited circumstances which justify the worker leaving. For example, if she hasn't been paid for three or more months yeah. or has been physically or sexually abused. But I, I don't think there are probably many of your listeners who would keep working without salary for three months. Would you? Would you no, keep working without salary? Not. Three months? not. And especially if my salary is not paid, I'm pretty sure that I'm being also disrespected on a daily basis. And this is my start. I mean, you know, it's, I don't, I feel like just by virtue of knowing that someone has the ability to take my papers away, meaning like their ability to take my freedom away and my passport yeah. with my cue to leave, this is, this would be like my first red flag. And I would just, be scared right in this, you know, I would, I would just be in the state starting this second. It's yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, many workers contact us and say, um, my madame hasn't paid me for two months, you know, and we, we say, look, we're really sorry. We can't help with that because the contract states that um, you, you can't, you're, you're deemed to breach the contract if you leave uh, unless you haven't been paid for three months. And then you're okay. They can leave for sexual abuse, but how do you prove that? You know, you're you're locked in quite often behind closed doors. So we often ask workers if they can secretly video abuse without putting themselves in danger. I mean, we emphasize: do yeah. not put yourselves in any danger. But we have received some very sobering visit video evidence, and some of that we've posted on our page of attempted rapes and groping and. Yeah, and, and most of the perpetrators are grandfathers. It's so disgusting. I know it's yeah. So we've got a few of those videos on our page. And we've also documented several cases of physical abuse. Um last week actually we did a post um wow. where we put, put the pictures of Marta, an Ethiopian um worker, who had been burned with a hot iron by her madame on her forehead and neck just before she was sent home. And she she um, was sent home without the three years salary that she was owed. And the madame was so, so angry about our negotiations. We take, we it took us 10 months to get them to finally agree to send her home. And they burned her with this hot iron and sent her home without her salary. And we contacted the Minister of Labour about that, actually, because um, the employers... Uh, from the same village as him, from the same extended family, uh, from the, you know, Beit Beidem. 
and we haven't had any reply. So if the Minister of Labour can't um, assist a worker who is from, you know, lived in the same village as him, working for the same uh, extended family, how's he going to help anyone else? We're, we're quite interested to know the answer to that. And that those same employers, we had already posted about them previously because the worker before Marta was a Kenyan woman who um, wrote to us and said she had escaped. She'd run away at three o'clock in the morning through forest to avoid the roads at night. And because her her employer, um, Carson Batum, had come to her in his boxes while she was doing her dishes in the kitchen and pressed himself up against her. And that was the second time he'd done something like that. So, uh, And that they were also physically abusive as well. So she was like, the, the madame's own family advised that girl to escape. So... That, you know, this Marta, the one that was burnt, was the second victim in that family. And we are really worried that they have a new girl in the house. And that's why we've asked the Minister of Labour to investigate that, but we haven't had any reply. So, how people what's the story? I just, I, it's not a concept for me that how people with precedence for abuse are just allowed to just continue and just keep employing people. I no, that now his response on um on Twitter, I think it was, or someone from his office, not him personally, said that um those employees had now been blacklisted. But it doesn't matter because they hadn't documented Marta anyway. They weren't she wasn't even under their name. And they can um get a new worker in exactly the same way as they got Marta. So it's you know, the that doesn't really work. So what can I say about the limitation of freedom, As like you asked? Basically, being a domestic worker in Lebanon is a two-year prison sentence. That's what the woman tell us. And I thought I'd just read um, out for your listeners some of the things that workers have said to us when they've written into us, just to give them a feel for how these women feel, right? Yes. This woman says, if I knew that Lebanon was like this, I would not come. I swear by God Almighty, I didn't know. Nobody informed me. They treat us like animals. There is no day off. When this month finishes, I will have spent one year, 10 months. I have not had a day of rest, which is not good. When you fall sick, they don't care. I am not happy, not happy, not happy. I came here for my children. Uh, this next um, person writing to us says, I'm tired of the suffering. Even sometimes I just feel like killing myself myself to end it all i came to this country to find a better life for me and my family not knowing that i will suffer so much and then i'll just read one more this person says um she always calls me animal where an animal like me came from i'm an ugly donkey i'm like a dog also wanted to beat me just for nothing i'm just tired and really going through hard times here so tell me tell you about freedoms there are, you know, there are there are no freedoms. These women are serving two-year prison sentences, and it's hard. It's really hard. This is this is really hard to hear, you know, because at the end of the day, like it's I, I'm not sure if you know our viewers or listeners can you know associate potentially like this message with you know a person, person with a family, with kids, with a mother, a father, a daughter, a done cut like she's like humans and. It's just 
it's chilling, you know, it's like, it's chilling. But then again, I remember, I remind myself about the jungle that is Lebanon and all of the other types of violence that are also happening against minorities, especially also women just in general. And I just, and you know, it's, um, it, it sometimes it makes me feel really helpless because it's, it's just truly terrible. You know, excuse me, it takes a village to enslave these women. It takes a village. Do you think that all of those people visiting um, the Baydom house had no idea what was going on? What would happen if one um, of the guests had just said quietly to her in the kitchen, everything okay? You're getting your salary? You know, it just takes, it takes a village for this to happen. It takes people to close their eyes. They, they consider these women to be like private property and you know it's like machasun you know the, this is this is private i can't get involved so that's why i say it takes a village yeah. you know this immediately just makes it proper like just makes her proper like it's just yeah and anyone uh you know this what they say that if you see something wrong and you don't speak up about it, you're at, you're complicit in every single way, shape or form. So that is like border, like bottom line here, what we're talking about. Um, so if I want to go through like some of the cases, you know, you're talking about and how you receive all these messages, can you potentially like walk me through your procedures and like how you onboard a case and like how you go through it? Yeah, sure. So we have um, various ways that women can contact us. Uh, they can contact us through our social media platforms. We're on Insta, Facebook, and Twitter. And or they can send us an email or they can contact us via WhatsApp or Telegram. So there are different ways that, that people contact us. 50% of our cases come from the, the victims and 50% uh, come through informants. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, very few of those informants are Lebanese like uh, probably a handful actually like literally a handful of cases have been reported to us by Lebanese we're hoping that will change and that's why we're talking partly why we're talking to you because if more Lebanese um, are aware of a way that they can help that they can approach us and that we will protect their anonymity um, then we're hoping that we will hear from more Lebanese so our procedures are um, extremely thorough we um we include, we, we speak with employers, with agents, with employers' neighbours. We call employers' workplaces. You know, we investigate with the worker herself, obviously, uh, her family, the sending agent. So we're talking to all of the parties involved. And we have a bilingual team. Um, oh, sorry, a multilingual team. So we're able to talk to um, the the families in their own in their own languages, which is obviously very very necessary and we do all we can to gather all the information to study a case objectively and strategically we don't ever take a case just at face value so there's a lot of investigating that goes on behind the scenes and then we contact the employer and it's um it's at the start to build rapport you know we want to find out we always want to hear the other side of the story we we know that there can be another side and we're not just believing the domestic worker. So we contact the employer and we say, you know, we tell them that we've been in, we've been informed of this case. We want to hear their opinion. 
We ask to see receipts because it's a contractual obligation that they keep receipts. And yeah, we do our homework. We, If a case ever makes it to our page, there's been months and months of um, work gone on behind the scenes, behind every case. And it's important for people to understand that our goal is not to post. Yeah. If we post, we have failed. We've failed to get that worker her salary despite you know all of our efforts. So many, many of our cases, no one ever hears about because the employers have decided that they don't want to be um, exposed on social media and up. they've paid the worker and sent her home. Yeah. It's all about it's getting the- harder. Part of it, right? This is everything about it. Just as long as no one knows our dirty secrets, we'll do whatever. Yeah, and we do tell them, um, you know, when it gets to the final stage and they're not being cooperative, that yeah. we will boost the post to um, every Arabic speaker within a 10-kilometer radius of their house. And um, it works. The jungle drums work. Like within, usually within half an hour of posting, we'll get an, um, a text message from someone who's seen it and and corroborates what we're saying. Oh, my God. And... Um... Can you give us examples of some of the cases or some of the basically abuses that we see in the cases that you're working on? Yeah, sure. So the main one is um, non-payment of salary. Mm -hmm. And actually we've found that women who go home um, who have been physically abused recover a lot quicker than women who go home without their salaries. It's one of the main um, reasons for suicide when they get home is the non-payment of salary. Uh, we had one case, uh, a Nepali woman called Sonam, who was unpaid for 10 years. And we were just in Nepal, actually. I was in Nepal myself three months ago, and we found out that Sonam committed suicide in 2020. And there's a direct line between her suicide and the non-payment of her salary. It was during covid um she couldn't the family hadn't you know were finding it difficult to eat and she the shame of returning home unpaid just um caused her to take her own life so yeah um so so i'll give you some stats i'll bore your listeners with some stats (laughs) this is for the numbers people in the last in the last year, we've received 165 cases um, who reported being owed cumulatively $300,000. So when you think that a, a domestic worker gets paid $150 a month on average, you know, or 200, that's a lot of, that's long-term non-payment. So 165 cases in the last year. And through our negotiation process, we managed to secure $66,000. So that means we helped recover about 27 years of unpaid salaries for migrant domestic workers. But you can see from those figures, we've got a long way to go. It's getting harder and harder to get these women paid. Like before the crash, if I was um, negotiate, pardon me, if I was negotiating a case, yeah. um, I more than more often than not, it would be successful. You know, I was sending women home regularly with uh, and seeing them getting paid $10,000 or more of unpaid salary. But wow. those stories now are becoming um, a lot rarer. 
it's getting it's getting harder and harder to get these women their salaries. So what? that's a um, non-pay. The physical abuse. Uh, we started keeping stats in 2018. So this is not since um, we started, but we've received 463 cases of physical abuse and sexual abuse, 205 uh, reported cases. But this is the tip of the iceberg, right? You know, this is... Yeah, this is the only, you know, the ones that actually had the ability to come and let you know. But what about, you know, all of the other ones, other people that can't even get to you or don't may potentially know hotline like yours that you know about us yeah yeah my god and i'll tell you about the employers shall i that we've done some profiling on employers <laughs> so we've, we've got we've done the we've um we've uh, done the data and uh we've found for example that 35 cases of these uh abusive employers owned their own businesses okay. and a dozen cases were of employers that worked for the government as um, as an army official or a government employee, I and mean, we've also things. I don't we know. Have enough, Honestly, sorry. That if that doesn't explain things, I don't know what does. Yeah, really. And then uh, actually, one of the, one of the main occupations we found of uh, of these ab abusive employers are doctors and doctors and dentists and lawyers. I don't know why, but they in Lebanon they seem to think that they're gods and they're beyond the law. So they feature quite prominently amongst among the abusive employers. And we've even had some uh, employers that work at for NGOs. We had even a case where the woman worked, the employer worked for the UN. So that was um, a lot easier to get that worker her salary. But yeah, across the board. I mean, talk about people who wanting wanting to save the community or make an impact on the community. A UN representative, a doctor, a lawyer, a security yeah. officer. Wow, just yeah. stand, up, stand up people. Love it. And, uh, and I can tell you a little bit about the um, location of where they are as well. And if we um, find that, for example, an employer is in Ashrafia, we feel a sense of relief <laughs> because mm -hmm. it's going to be easier to negotiate than someone who, where the employer lives in um, in Baalbek or the Bakar because these are just lawless areas and they don't care. I mean, we we even um, contacted Noah Zaita, Zaita, however you say it, you know, who's the, the drug baron of Lebanon, and he didn't care. He was just like post, you know, he doesn't care about his reputation. So often they, these employers in those areas in particular feel empowered by the the the, the lawlessness. One employer even said, um, "The we've got it on record, we've recorded it, and it's on our website as well, that she can shoot her worker in the living room and no one will notice." It's so these are these are we talk about family names like Zata and and um, Jafar, and these cases are really difficult to negotiate. I mean, these these people essentially control the the areas that they live in. Even the army ba is barely able to handle them. I mean, exactly. Yeah, when we when a worker contacts us and says she's in Baalbek, our heart drops. I mean, understandably, understandably. So, starting with some of the cases that you have worked on, um, in two thousand seventeen, there was 
a slight problematic case that came onto your hands about um, a migrant worker in the name of Halima. And it was problematic because her employers were actually big names in the country, I believe. Um, can you give us a little bit more insight on this case? Oh my gosh, I would love to tell you about this case. <laughs> I mean, I actually handled this case personally and I visited Halima in the jungle in the Philippines when she got back home. So this is not just a case to me. So Halima was a, a she's Filipino and she left behind three young daughters to go to Lebanon. The youngest one was only two years old when she left. So she basically lost, you know, lost her mother during her child her whole childhood. She was in Lebanon for 10 years. And in the first month after she arrived, um, she got paid and she called her husband. All good in the first month. And then that was the last phone call she ever made. He never heard from her again, never got another payment. And she was working for a, a woman called Ibtisam Saade, who is an advocate for women's rights, apparently, according to magazine covers that we've seen. Uh, Lebanese woman, obviously, Filipino woman, aunt woman, apparently. And she's very active in political circles. So her Facebook profile has pictures of her with heads of all the political parties and heads of the church, very well-known woman. Uh, and so Halima's husband, bless him, for 10 years got on his little motorcycle and no no phone, no reception in the jungle where he lived, Went, drove, rode half an hour to another village where he could call Ibtisam Saadi to try to speak to his wife. And every time, he did this every week. Can you imagine every week for a year he did this? And every time she would say, Halima is out, or hold the line, Halima's coming. Sure. And he would wait, wait until his phone card ran out and then get on his motorbike and go back to his village again. And many told him to give up, that Halima is surely dead. But he never gave up hope. It's an astounding story, actually. Oh my God. I I don't even want to comment like this is the worst part when it comes to people who have let's say places of authority or places of power or know people in the government it's like I don't know how can you be a women's rights defender and do this not just to a woman but just to a human being in general and Again, we're, we're going to go back to saying that pretty sure a lot of the people around her recognize the abuse and see the abuse as well and also don't speak out. So even in her own environment. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit more about um, Ibtisam Saadeh. So um, Halima was one of our very first cases, actually. We just started the page and we only had 5,000 followers back then, which is... Seems unbelievable now. now. Now we're up to nearly 150,000. So we, you know, followers are equal power and we didn't have much back in those days. Yeah. But Halima's husband had contacted us and so we posted these little videos from him and his children on our page and they held up signs saying, Ibtisam Saadi, where is our mother? And uh, Ibtisam and her adult son, Allah, they responded by posting their own pictures supposedly of Halima out shopping, getting her hair done, whining and dining, and generally having the, the time of her life. 
There was even, they even posted a video and we're used to these now. It was the first one of this genre, but now we realize that it is, you know, it is a thing. They posted a a video of them all coming in with a cake with Halima written on it, clapping and singing her happy birthday. So, I mean, it was wonderful theatre, was fabulous, but of course none of it was true. And eventually, despite um, these little happy videos that they posted, they succumbed to the pressure and they sent her home wearing just her flip-flops, going home in her flip-flops. And when she, uh, Halima packed her bags before she left, sorry, I mean, Ibtisam yeah. packed her bags before, she, um, before Halima left. And when Halima got to Manila, she got her bag out and she opened it and it was full of um, used sanitary pads. <gasps> yeah. She, I mean, this woman is unbelievable. They had remarkably paid her $5,000 before she left. That was her uh, payment for 10 years of slavery. And then myself and a friend flew to visit her in the Philippines and we recorded her testimony. After she got home, we learned that um, there was an Ethiopian that worked for Muhammad, who is another of Ibtisam's son, who's um, part of Hezbollah. And she had died trying to escape. So Halima actually saw her on the concrete outside the building dead. And two other Filipino workers contacted us as well after we posted the story. And they had also worked, worked for Ibtisam. One of them had escaped by jumping onto the balcony of the adjoining building. Can you believe it? Oh, like, my God. Yeah. I mean, the build, some of the buildings are close together, but that was – she really took a risk there. But she she flew to the adjoining building, and that's how she got away. And another one said that she managed to leave the day that um, Ibtisam and her family were moving house, and the packers were inside the house. And um, she managed to get out the front door. And uh, one person contacted us using a fake profile and said that she was a relative of Ibtisam's. And she knew from one of the workers that Ibtisam had forced the worker to drink her urine. So we're talking about really um, depraved behavior here. Halima told us also that um, after we posted, the family, she heard the, you know, I mean, she, by this stage, she understood some Arabic, not a lot, because yeah. they on intentionally hadn't taught her. But um, she understood enough to understand uh, that when they were sitting around the kitchen table, they were discussing whether to take her over into Syria and kill her or not. <gasps> yeah. What the actual fuck? <laughs> I, that, I mean, some of these stories, you, you, you yeah, that, that's why we want to tell these stories. We want Lebanese to know. We want to bring them. At, we want to bring them out of the darkness. No one, no, no one knew about these things before we started our page. I just don't understand the motive. Like, why go to these lengths? Like, to that? Like, what did she do? You, you know what I mean? It's like the the sheer like monstrosity in these people is that I don't understand what kind of pain or like whatever this person inflicted on them for them to do these things like to send her with a bag full of sat like used sanitary pads first of all what like this is just beyond like not even just like like it's disgusting it just shows like how trash people can be oh my god and um can you can you maybe like explain to us some of like the limitations that you experienced as a result um, 
of the existing legal procedures, or let's say the lack thereof of these legal uh, procedures? Yeah, well, um, a human rights uh, organization, lawyers, filed a case against Ibtisam in yeah. 2017. And last year, the courts found in Halima's favor, but then Ibtisam appealed. And to this day, Halima hasn't received a penny of her unpaid you know, salary. It's actually difficult for even the average Lebanese citizen, right, to obtain justice in the judiciary system. So if, you know, if those responsible for the Beirut blast cannot be held accountable, how is a migrant domestic worker supposed to get justice? No, that's exactly what I was going to say before is because, I mean, they already, you know, blew up the entire, almost half of the cities and they got way got free. So um, do you know how much they still owe her money? Or like the sum? Well, they owe, well, they owe her 10 years salary, less $5,000. I mean, in a in any other judicial system in a country that had a, a self-respecting judiciary, Ibtisam uh, <laughs> would be behind bars and made to sell her house to, you know, to pay off. I've Which seen Halima and her family are living. They're living in, in basically a tree house that doesn't have walls. And this is a woman who went, you know, went to Lebanon to lift her family out of poverty. It's just unbelievable that Ibtisam is still walking around free, you know, carrying out her normal life as if nothing happened and Halima and her family are living in a treehouse. Still being the person or the woman who's defending other women, right? She still does, does she still have, you know, her normal status and does the same things that she does before? No, I don't think so. I think she's keeping her head low now. Man, with reason. Um... So there was a another case as well that I want to talk about in 2021. Um, and this one was involving a migrant worker in the name of uh, Miseret. Am I, am I pronouncing it right? And it was actually the first criminal case that was brought to a Lebanese court by a domestic migrant worker, um, really just uh, against her former employer specifically. But can you tell us a little bit more about it and your involvement as this is Lebanon? Yep, sure. Misserat was enslaved by Dr. May Saade. Uh, she's a dentist. And she's the mother of Ghadi Bashada, who is a name that maybe some of your listeners will know. He's a, a well-known singer, and his YouTube videos, some of them have had more than 7 million likes. Oh, wow. So, yeah, he's the he, he was the voice of Lebanon, and he was raised by a slave. And Mesa Adi's oldest daughter studied in the United States. So we're talking about a family that has money, right? You you don't put your child into a private college in the U.S. if you don't have substantial financial resources. Uh, yeah, we're talking about minimum 100K worth uh, tuition a year, maybe, almost, at this case. Right. It's up there, yeah. Yeah. So uh, they have money, and that is a common thread in many of our cases. Um, doctors and lawyers are the worst abusers. So often people ch choose to enslave their domestic worker, not because they can't pay, but because they know that the kafala system grants them complete impunity and they can get away with it, right? Who who in Lebanon is going to hold them responsible? No one. So that's what that's what Dr. Saadi did. She, she kept Mesirat locked up for eight years. And when I say locked up, I mean locked up. 
She wasn't even um, allowed to see the neighbours. She was denied contact with the outside world. And uh, Mesirat told us once she got home that every day um, Dr. Saad called, you know, called her Shadmuta, yeah, that means bitch or prostitute or, you know, my back, my black slave. This is daily, daily uh, verbal abuse. And she was her, her black slave, to be honest. Uh, and then three years into her captivity, uh, Mesirat thought she had the perfect opportunity to escape. Uh, the Dr. Saadi was taking her to the consulate to renew her passport. And so Mesirat told the consulate staff in Amharic, her own language, what was happening and asked them to help her. But um, a diplomat there told her, we can't help you. You have a contract. You need to return with her now. Are you kidding so, me? I mean, no, I'm not kidding. The Ethiopian consulate, we could do a whole podcast on them. <laughs> I mean, they stole the, um, oh, I won't even go into that. You can cut that bit out. <laughs> um, and then years later, yeah, I think uh, it was 2018, I believe, Mesirat's family contacted our page, the, the family in Ethiopia. So we went through our processes. We contacted Dr. Saade. Um, and then a few days later, and I'm talking literal days, yeah. Mesirat was on a plane to Ethiopia with $50. It's and that was her payment for, for almost nine years of hell. 50 dollars yeah um how was it possible for you to bring this case to court versus i mean the other cases potentially yeah at that time we were um referring cases to an organization called legal action worldwide and they brought um a lawsuit against dr saade the first hearing was in October 2021, and she failed to appear in the court. And what are we now? It's June 23, so almost two years later, and still no outcome, which I'm sure won't surprise your Lebanese audience. But I mean, what does this leave for, you know, future cases or, you know? Absolutely nothing, unless the court's decide to hold her accountable which um you know we're not holding our breath for you know the, the the worst part of it all is that this specific family not just because they had money but then we can say that this is, was an educated family you know this was someone who had an international following if you're telling me six seven million people listen to the music um you know they're educated in the west with the notions of you know uh human rights and at least i mean I, I don't know at least in the last few years we saw like the black lives matters movement and i don't know i would i would just oh man because sometimes you know a lot of people just think oh maybe it's because people are not educated enough you know and that this is why this is just it's like purpose it's intentional you know it's it's completely intentional um now, in the, in the last like few years, just to go back to this, I mean, Lebanon has been through hell, you know, and it's been a very, very difficult place to live um, since 2019 and, and the economic crisis. So how did the 
e crumbling economy and basically like socio-political situation and like everything else going on in Lebanon amplify the abuse against migrant workers. So salaries were always low for domestic workers in Lebanon, but now they're even lower. Currently, there are only two countries still openly sending women to Lebanon. The, all the other countries have put bans on their women going to Lebanon. Sure. Uh, those countries are Kenya and Sierra Leone. So the Kenyan women often write to us saying they were promised, you know, before they left that they would get two fifty a month, but uh, after they arrived, they were only being paid two hundred or even one hundred and fifty. So there's a lot of deceit in um, what they're told. And then the Sierra Leoneans are promised 200. And when they arrive, they find that it's 150 or sometimes even as little as $100 a month. So, they, you know, they're coming to Lebanon um, having been told a bunch of lies. So this is like where, I mean, I, I kind of want to question, like, who's responsible for this? You know, like, is it... Is it, I guess, okay, maybe a better way to maybe to frame this. How do women or migrant workers sign up for the kafala system? Because I'm thinking here that it's a double, you know, maybe it's, do they have like offices based in Sierra Leone, let's say, or Kenya that actually help with the, with the process or? Yeah, yeah there are networks of recruiting agencies in the sending countries and they have partnerships with the recruiting agents in Lebanon. So well, they would they know what's going on then. So the problem also starts with them. I'm pretty sure like they get big, maybe a big load of money for them to just. Yeah, sure. Everyone in the gravy, you know, everyone's benefiting from this gravy train, except the workers themselves. The Lebanese government are doing really well out of it. There were studies, um, that show that, you know, just the millions and millions of dollars that the Lebanese government makes off this kafala system, it's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, it's just because this is the first time I think about it, I'm like, okay, okay, if if they're coming from there, then something there is also complicit in these, you know, in, in all of the procedures. So in my and it's just, wow, it's baffling for me. Um, and I guess I also want to touch on, you know, with the, with the, um, economic uh, situation we did see uh, a lot of migrant workers being dropped off at the embassies because employers couldn't afford you know to give them their salaries anymore and this also a lot of it happened apparently a bit during covid and we saw them literally sleeping on the streets can you tell me a little bit more about you know some of these experiences yeah sure i think mo most people saw the pictures of the domestic workers being dumped you know, either on the street or in front of the embassies, like like there were bags of garbage being thrown out. So all those pictures went viral in the media. But what people don't see or didn't see is the, um, the women who are still inside the houses working for nothing now. So many times when our negotiators contact the employers about non-payment, they say, and We've heard this so many times. Well, at least I didn't throw her out on the street like others did. So they actually, I think they justify it to themselves because they must, right? They must, there must be an inner dialogue. They justify the slavery by saying at least they they are giving her food and a roof over her head. Like she didn't have a house and food in her own country. So yeah, that's that's the untold story. 
it's like, I'm not going to do the bad thing, but I'm going to do the worst. Or I'm not going to do the worst, but I'm also going to do a bad thing anyway. You know? <laughs> it's like there's I no... Think they, self yeah. they self themselves into believing that they're actually doing her a favor by having her working for free. My God, I don't know. This delusional, honestly, delusional. And do we know a little bit about whether or not um, an increase of violence was recorded in the last three, four years? That's very difficult to to measure. You know, how do you measure whether a level of violence has changed? Yeah. And anyway, there's always there's always been complete impunity when it comes to violence against domestic workers. Yeah. So when when a worker dies trying to escape abuse, it's always classified as a suicide. And we've always uh, maintained that we we think the authorities should do a, a proper investigation because at the moment they're just pro forma. So at minimum, minimum, they should ask um, two questions. One, was she getting paid? And two, was she in contact with her family? And yeah. if either of the answers to those questions are no, then that's an immediate red flag. But they don't even, they don't bother to ask those questions. We think a lot of the um, so-called suicides uh, are actually murders. Like we documented one case that went had over a million views on Twitter, actually, of a woman that we knew uh, she was being sexually abused and we were trying to, we were planning to um, help her escape. And we'd, um, you know, she'd sent her pictures of the landmarks around the house and stuff like that. And we were still talking to her when she was found um, at the bottom of the, I think it was 12-story building, dead in the, in the car park. And, we, and it was classified as a suicide. But we were... 99.9% sure it wasn't suicide because we were talking to her and and planning her escape. Why would she have committed suicide when she knew help was on the way? It was murder. It's very painful, honestly, <laughs> to hear. I, yeah, the level of cruelty sometimes, I just, I really don't understand. I, um, now- just to, just to be this would happen in any country. It would happen in Canada as well. Yeah. Because people are people wherever, right? It's not that Lebanese are crueler than anyone accountability else. and justice, like that's the whole part is that, okay, it's happening, but it's happening a lot more and on such like a big, you know, in, a, in, in an increased manner because there's no justice or no one's being accountable exactly. or arrested for these things. So it's just so normalized. Like how can this thing... Like the kafala, like if I want to speak in millennial terms, the kafala system, the modern day slavery, is something that's become normalized and mainstream. Like how it's not even modern day slavery. I mean, I don't even we don't even use that term modern day slavery. It's just old fashioned slavery. It's slavery, and it's mainstream. That's like it. I just don't understand. It's um, I mean. You as an organization and working with, you know, these very sensitive stories and with people who potentially have power in the government and in the country, have you been as an organization potentially like threatened or subjected to any abuse or verbal abuse because of the nature of the work that you're doing? Oh, of course. It's that, I mean, every... Every slaveholder brings a lawsuit against us in Lebanon. It's just, um, that's just standard. 
And they, they always threaten us with a lawsuit. A woman that just arrived this morning in Nepal, yeah. having been unpaid, you know, owed nine years salary, her employers threatened to bring a lawsuit against us. So yeah, that's how ridiculous it is. But we just tell them take a number and join the queue, you know, because everyone's everyone's bringing a lawsuit against us. A number. <laughs> and, yeah. And our negotiators regularly get called every name under the sun. I used to do the negotiation myself. And at the start, I found it really disturbing, actually. I've had very powerful people tell me they're going to find me and, you know, you fill in the gap of what they're going to do to me. I could play you recordings of their threats. And if I did, you would understand why I have nightmares. But that's that's the nature of the work. I mean, also, just to explain to our audience why you know you are coming out anonymous and you know this is you know this podcast happened but you and i have had a lot of talks in the background of how this could go and how it should go because to, to keep your safety and to keep your anonymity because this is so important and i mean thank you for doing this work i mean just to say because i mean this is something that really is brave and it's something that you know you don't need to do you you really don't need to and I guess is what you said it takes a village to really put the word out there so I'm pretty sure a lot of the people you're helping really appreciate your help and and you being there for them you know um like I can't imagine you know someone really reaching out for help on this hotline and then really having someone at the other end of that line be there and listen and believe what they're going through this is the most important thing is that you're believing them and you're not just like you know completely uh what do you say like uh uh like ignoring or belittling their issues as well that's like very important for and for everyone for anyone really seeking help um yeah, i want to say a couple of comments that um people wrote to us after we um were able to help them this person says thank you for always giving hope to most of us who thought it was the end God bless you. This is Lebanon. You've really given me a shoulder to lean on during this difficult time in my life. And then another one says, um, you changed any pain I was going through into joy from the day I contacted you. I really needed you and God brought you. God bless you all. So, yeah, that, that's why we do it, you know, because um, it's very satisfying, actually, to be able to help them. Saving lives. This is essentially what you're, you're literally saving lives. I mean, that I can't, I can't even think about another, like more fulfilling thing you're able to do. It's, it's amazing really. So I want to kind of go back to a little bit of how you manage the operations and how you manage to sustain your operations as this is Lebanon for the last few years since 2017. Um, how do you fund it? How do you work? Uh, it's a constant battle, actually, but um, we are really fortunate in that we have uh, a private donor who covers most of our operating expenses. Mm -hmm. So general donations um, that are given th usually through our website can be used for air tickets and financial aid. So the, the donor only covers the cost of um, staffing and IT and stuff like that. But the general donations go directly to the workers for example, Halima, who we talked about, we gave her $1,000 and Mesirat also got $1,000. So we try to give some financial aid to each worker who goes home with more than six months unpaid salary. It's not a lot, but it does help. Yeah. And um, it's really important for the negotiating team 
to be able to offer to buy an air ticket for a worker. That can be the difference between getting her released or not. And yeah. so in, in providing air tickets, we've managed to get many women safely home and free from abusive situations. So we most of our general donations come from um, the Lebanese diaspora, actually. And we are, um, I barely have the words, but we're so grateful for their partnership. There are so many wonderful, wonderful Lebanese out there. And we just couldn't do what we do without their generosity. So a big shout out to those, to the Lebanese diaspora who are helping us. Uh, I mean, if you're listening, you know, a lot of our viewers are the Lebanese diaspora. This is, you know, a very important cause. If you're listening, look at how much you can help. So please help. Uh, we will be sharing a lot of also your links of where people can donate and everything after this episode. So if you're listening, go for it. Um, we are such a shoestring organization. We're basically doing the work of the Ministry of Labor for under um, $100,000 a year. I don't even know if I'm supposed to share that figure, but I mean, it's we're talking about, you know, we're, we're running on a shoestring and we're able to achieve so much. And I think yeah. if I was a donor, I would want to give to us because none of the uh, that money that is given is going to just um, overheads. It's directly helping the workers that we're, you know, that we're dealing with. That's amazing, honestly. Like, imagine if we if if it's such a small budget, you know, considering how much help you're able to to also give. So, can you just imagine if they're able to like? the ministry can just give 0.5% more or like whatever from their budget that they put on other stuff or like the, just like the 0.5% of the money that they steal. Let's just like keep it as basic as that. Um, to well, we don't want their money. We just want them to cooperate with us. Like how great would it be if we could contract, contact the Ministry of Labor and say, look, we've um, got this worker who's been enslaved for X number of months or years. Can you assist? Yeah. But you know, we don't. There's no cooperation from them. Yeah. You know, they're they're basic. We're basically fighting the Lebanese government, right? When we want to work with them, yeah. we don't want a post. We don't want a post. No, we just want workers to receive their salaries and to go home peacefully. You know, no. we're not after punitive damages for them. We don't. All we claim is the minimum salary that she worked for. Just pay her and send her home. That's all we want. Yeah. So last question, and then we'll conclude. Um, is there anything you think we you want to add to this conversation that we haven't added yet, you think? No, I don't think so. I just want it to be clear to your listeners that um, like that, we have this common accusation against us that we're blackmailers, but it's just, it's so not true because, you know, we go to great lengths to hear the employer's point of view we don't we don't ever touch the money of any domestic worker we refuse to even act as a channel we just want them to pay the worker her salary yeah um so us as listeners and as viewers and allies to your cause how do you think that we can fight alongside you to abolish kafala and what can our viewers and listeners help um or do to help um, you can follow us on so all our social media platforms and comment as well. Abusers don't mind it if, you know, a hundred domestic workers write a comment. 
but uh, they're very sensitive to comments from uh, fellow Lebanese. So, yeah, comment on our posts, contact the the employers. We always have their contact details on our website. Contact them and say that you saw um, you saw the post, Thank and you. just let you know you can. Yeah, ask them for their to show them the receipts. Ask them to give them you know go in as if you're a um, completely neutral person and just ask what's going on. So interact with the posts and contact the employers. Yeah, I um, and also speak up if you see something. I just want to add this because a lot of people in Lebanon sometimes turn a blind eye to these things. They see some of the abuse happening in front of them between the employer and migrant worker. And sometimes, you know, you can also speak up for other human beings. It's okay. It's uh, it's your duty. Yeah, I mean, when I was. When I was living in Lebanon, uh, my neighbor rushed over to my apartment one day and said, quick, quick, come. There's a, a woman downstairs who's beating up her domestic worker. And I, I said, why don't you do something about it? You know, why don't you intervene? Because it was on the footpath below. And that thought had never even occurred to her. It was just like, go and get the foreigner to um to do something. But Lebanese can do something. And at the at the very minimum, they can contact our page and we will protect their anonymity and we will yeah we can do something we just need them to reach out to us i guess like also just to remind people that some of these migrant workers helped raised you you know they were there they they asked about your day they asked about your days at school your bad days if you're okay whatever you need they practically raised you it's your yeah sajita Sajita was sent home recently without 10 years salary by um, Richard Khordi. And when I interviewed her, um, she, I, she, I said, do you want, what do you want? Do you want punishment for the employees? She said, no, I don't want punishment. I just want my salary. And she said, and I want to talk to those, to their daughters because she said, I miss them. I raised them. I mean, essentially they're part of the family, you know, um, so yeah, keep that in mind the next time you see someone uh, needing your help, speak up. Um, but on this note, uh, thank you so much. This is Lebanon for being with us today. Um, I've learned so much. You shared a lot of your insights, a lot of the stories that people really need to hear and listen so that they're able to, they're well equipped with the tools to do something about you know the kafala system um, and helping migrant workers get out of this, let's say, slavery system that we have in, in, in Lebanon and in the Arab world. Um, so I really appreciate your time um, and the fact that you also put yourself in, you know, in a, a little bit of a situation here, risking your safety to, to talk about these things. So I really appreciate it. Uh, for our viewers and listeners, if you really like this episode, like, follow and subscribe, and we will see you next time. Have a great day.